Hello, and thank you very much for tuning in. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You're listening to JRoot Radio, 97.5 FM. It's our weekly shir, our weekly class in the Parsha, the Torah portion of the week. As always, I thank Hashem and the radio station for allowing me to be here with you. And God willing, we should have a great shir in the Parsha this evening. As always, if you'd like to get in touch with me after the shir and the weeks ahead or anything else, please just simply write me an email. My email address is director at jeln.org. Director at jeln.org. I'm glad to send you a printed version of some of the Torah we'll cover tonight by email in time for Shabbos. Just send me an email and I'd be glad to send it to you, God willing, Thursday night. Um, I'm often asked, how can you access previous week's Shi'urim? You can find them at the JRoot Radio site. Uh, additionally, if you go to TorahAnytime.com and look up my speakers page under the last name Bregman, B-R-E-G-M-A-N, I have almost 300 classes there, not just on the Parsha, general topics. I have a whole series there called Short and Sweet. Um which is uh, short videos in about four to six minutes. They're sort of like mini classes. I deal with everything from Shidduchim to Emuna and faith and Nisyonis and problems and challenges and uh, all kinds of different interesting things, bringing out your potential. Good stuff, I think. So uh, feel free to check that out at Torah anytime. And Mir um, let's get started with Parshat Vayakel. So I'd like to start out. On chapter 35, verse 1, the Pesach says that Moshe assembled the entire assembly of the children of Israel. Now, in its very first comment on our parsha, the Medrash and the Yalkut Shemoini notes that the only time that the Torah mentions Moshe gathering the people to give him a mitzvah, it's over here at the top of our parsha when he tells them about Shabbos. This is the only time the Medrash notes that Moshe gathers all the people to tell him about a mitzvah. Normally, he gave it to a select group, the elders. And the, the sages, and they passed it on, and so on and so forth. There was a chain of command by which the mitzvahs were given and disseminated. But here, the Torah records, Moshe gave the mitzvah to everyone, and it was Shabbos. And this medrash, in the beginning of Yalkut Shemoni and our parsha, explains that Hashem told Moshe to assemble the people together and publicly teach them about the laws of Shabbos. And by doing so, the medrash says, future generations of Jewish leaders, the future Moshe's, uh, the people who would fulfill his role in the future, they would thereby learn that they are supposed to gather their own congregations on Shabbos and teach them what a Jew is supposed to know about the Shabbos, about our holy day. So we see from here this medrash, the Limura Torah, Torah study, it's supposed to be one of the key features of our weekly observance of Shabbos. And in fact, if you look at another medrash, the Tanad Be'eliyahu Rabbah, under Ois Aleph, notes over there, that all of our spare time on Shabbos should be devoted to Limara Torah. So I guess if you're not helping your, your wife or your husband, and you're not spending time with your kids, and you're not davening and shul, and you're not at the Shabbos, you know, whatever else, you have spare time, it should be de- de- devoted, the Medrashis and Tanah Tana Leo to Limara Torah, to Torah study. That's what you should be doing on Shabbos. So I'm pro-nap, I'm pro-kishka. I'm in favor of spending time with your kids, but eventually you have to roll up your sleeves and sit and learn. So a person may ask, you know, when was it that the Jewish people first began to place such an enormous stress and emphasis on their Torah study of Shabbos? When did that begin? 
Was it with from from Avram Avinu about four thousand years ago? Did it begin after Har Sinai? When did it begin? Well, I can tell you as follows. The answer is that Torah study was most certainly a featured element of our Shabbos observance at least as early as during our time in Mitzrayim, our time in Egypt. How do I know? There's a Medrash in Shmois Rabbah under Ois Hay, Parsha Hay, Section Hay, under Ois Yudches. The Medrash says over there in Shmois Rabbah that, that the Yidden, that the Jewish people in Mitzrayim had in their possession scrolls sort of Megillah's scrolls, from which they would study on Shabbos. And the Medrash says, and the commentaries explain, that these scrolls somehow spoke about how Hashem would eventually redeem them from their slavery. Now that, Medrash, those facts, what I just said over there, are actually alluded to in the text of the Chumash itself. Let me explain to you where. If you look in the book of Shemais earlier on, something at the beginning of the book of Exodus, which we're getting close to concluding, in chapter 5, verse 9, Paroi, Pharaoh says over there, let the work be heavier upon the men and let them engage in it. And then he says, and let them not pay attention to false words. This is what when uh, this is what Paro says when he hears that the Jewish people want to take a several days Shabbaton and to go serve Hashem. He says, let the work be heavier on them. They're, they're thinking of taking a Torah vacation. Forget about it. They need more work and let them engage in it and let them not pay attention to false words. So now Tehillim, uh, Tehillim, there's a Pusik in Tehillim, chapter 119, verse 92, that reads, it's a famous uh, phrase, it's a famous song, Lulei Sayyascha, Shashuai, had your Torah, David HaMelech says, had your Torah not been my plaything, Shashuai, my plaything, my toy, then I would have perished in my affliction. Now bear with me, King David, David HaMelech here, compares the Torah to his plaything, Shashuai. Okay, now uh, it's pointed out the Medrash Shecher Taiv in Tehillim, on this capital, 119, points out that this phrase in Shmois, let them not pay attention to, not pay attention to, the pay attention to is Yishu, Yishu. Pay attention to, the Medrash notes, Yishu, it's the same Shairish, the same letters as the word Shashuai, which means the, the plaything. And not only that, so you see that the same word to not pay attention to, the false words, Aparo said, don't pay attention to the false words. Yishu, same as Shashuai. And Shashuai over here, it's referring to the Torah. David says, Lule Sarascha Shashuai. If your Torah hadn't been my plaything, Shashuai. So the Torah is the plaything, the Shashuai. And so what was it, says the Medrash Taiv, the Pyro was referring to, when he said, let them not pay attention to false words. What are the false words? What's the Yishu? That let them not pay attention to. So the Medrash explains when the verse says that Paro urges the Jewish people to not yishu false words, he was urging them to ignore the scrolls, the Torah that they had in their possession from which they would derive enormous pleasure each Shabbos, much like a shashuai, much like a plaything. It was going on the scrolls that promised that one day they would be redeemed. So you see that uh, alluded to the Medrash Shaykh says from the fact and the Pesach says, Paro tells the Jews, let him not pay attention to false words. And then not pay attention to his issue. It's like the word Shashuai. We know Shashuai is going on the Torah. That's what David Amalek says. Lulei right? Let your Torah not, uh, your Torah was my plaything. 
And it's the same word, so David is comparing it to a plaything and the Tyra. So Paro says, don't pay attention to that shtickle Tyra and those scrolls uh, with false words. Yeah, you're never going to get out of here. You're never going to be redeemed. You're just going to have to work. Okay. Now, the Pusik says over here, um, Pusik says, that these are the things that Hashem commanded Moshe to do them. Beginning of the parsha, these, Eile, are the things that Hashem commanded Moshe to do them. And the next Pasuk says, on six days work may be done, but the seventh day shall be holy for you, a day of complete rest for Hashem. Now, in Lashon HaKadosh, where it says these, that's the word Eile. Eile means these. Now, Eile, it's in plural tense. Well, that's fine, but since that's so, we have to ask, why is the Shabbos, which is the subject of our passage over here, <clears throat> referred to in a plural tense? After all, Shabbos, it's, it's only one of the 613 mitzvahs in the Torah, Shmir Shabbos, albeit it has many parts, but it's one mitzvah. So why is it with Eile, which is these? So the Chsam Seifer speaks this out, and he says that the use of the plural tense in reference to the Shabbos hints to the idea that the stature of the Shabbos is equal to the entire Torah. That's why he says, Chsam Seifer, it's Eile, even though Eile is plural, these, even though Shabbos is just one mitzvah, is because Shabbos is equal in stature, says Chsam Seifer, to the entirety of the Torah. And in truth, there's a lot of authority in Torah to support the Chsam Seifer's contention. And I've seen this idea expressed many, many, many times. For example, there's Midrashim. If you look in Shmois Rabbah, section 25, Ois 16, and the Psikta, they mention explicitly over there that Shmir Shabbos, observing Shabbos, it's equal to fulfilling all of the mitzvahs of the Torah. And God forbid, if a person would desecrate Shabbos, it's tantamount to violating all of the mitzvahs of the Torah. So we see this clearly in Medrash, and Shmai Sirabba, and the Psikta. Chsam Seifer derives the same idea from the fact that Shabbos is described over here and introduced with the phrase, these, Ele, and then some plural, because it's equal to all the mitzvahs of the Torah. Okay, let's go weiter in the Parsha, chapter 35, verse 2. We said that it says over here in the Parsha, on six days work may be done, but the seventh day shall be holy for you, a day of complete rest for Hashem. Okay, Shabbos. So Parsha's Vayakel deals exclusively with the construction of the Mishkan and its contributions and the Kalim, the vessels that are inside it. So as such, it seems unusual that you find the mention of the Shabbos, the observance of Shabbos, at the beginning of our parsha. The rest of the parsha, it's just and only exclusively the Mishkan. Now, obviously, no disrespect intended to the Shabbos, but it, talking about Shabbos just seems a little bit out of context over here. So what's this about? So Rav Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, he gives a nice explanation. There's a Gemara in Shabbos, Dav Yud Beis, and it's the same Gemara appears in Beya, Dav Tezayin Amad Aleph. The Gemara there relates that the Shabbos, our Shabbat, our Shabbos, it's a gift from a Kaddish Baruch Hu to the Jewish people. Now, after they had sinned with the golden calf, the Jewish people, they were filled with a terrible dread. They were very scared. They were afraid that maybe they were no longer worthy of the gift of Shabbos. Now the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Davnon Chesamad Beis 58b, that an idolater 
who ceases working for an entire day, is Chayiv Misa, liable to the death penalty for keeping Shabbos. In other words, an idolater, the Gemara says, can't keep Shabbos. So said Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, he explained that the Jewish people were afraid that their involvement with the golden calf, which was, at the minimum, very similar to idolatry, had rendered upon them the status of idol worshippers. So therefore, what? To demonstrate that they were mistaken, he notes that the Torah presents us with a mitzvah to keep Shabbos right before the Chet Egel, the sin of the golden calf. If you look in the Chumash, chapter 31 of the book of Exodus, verses 12 to 17, you see the mitzvah to keep Shabbos is presented right before the golden calf and also right after the golden calf in our Parsha. Uh, our Pasuk over here, which begins our Parsha right after the Golden Calf episode. Why? Said Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, it's as though Hashem is trying to say to you, hey, just as you were obligated in Shabbos observance before your sin of the Golden Calf, so too you are still obligated in the Shabbos after the sin. In other words, Jewish people, you don't have to have any fear. Your sin of the golden calf did not confer upon you the status of Gentiles and idolaters for whom they wouldn't be allowed to keep this Shabbos. Very nice idea. So according to that shot, I'm thinking like this. You know, the mention of Shabbos at the beginning of our Parsha would have nothing to do with the thematic connection between the Shabbos and the building of the Mishkan. Rashi and others want to say that the reason Shabbos is listed on our Parsha before the, all of the mention of the Mishkan is to say that the building of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the temple, the Mikdash, as important as it is, it doesn't take precedence over observing Shabbos. You can't just uh, build a Mishkan and uh, break Shabbos because you want to you do that. No, Shabbos observance comes first, even before the Mishkan and its building. So according to what I just said from Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, um, the mention of Shabbos at the beginning of our parsha has nothing to do per se with the connection between Shabbos and the building of the Mishkan. Rather, it's so that the mitzvah to keep Shabbos can surround and uh, like bookends both sides of the description of the golden calf. Obviously, what Rabbi Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld is saying is true. Obviously, what Rashi and others who bring that idea that I mentioned a moment ago, obviously they are correct as well. I'm just saying, according to this shita, it's there for a different purpose for this vart. Okay, good. Now, <clears throat> chapter 35, verse 3, the Pasuk says, You shall not kindle any fire in any of your dwellings on the Shabbos day. Okay. Now, beyond the literal prohibition of lighting a fire on the Shabbos day, the Chsam Soifer says that this Pasuk means that one should not wait for the Shabbos to come in order to spiritually catch fire, get excited, and be inspired. Instead, he says a Jew should be spiritually pumped up and enthused throughout the work week, and that enthusiasm should then be carried over into the Shabbos. So when he says, you shall not kindle, the Pasuk says, do not kindle fire in any of your dwellings on the Shabbos day, saying you shouldn't have to light a spiritual fire in yourself on Shabbos. You should be hot, ideally, from the entire week going in. And he explains, in fact, this is why in the verse immediately preceding this one, in chapter 35, verse 2, the Torah says, on six days, work may be done. He's saying that in Drush, it's telling us that the work of becoming spiritually enthused, it should be undertaken in the preceding six days, not just through kindling of your neshama, your Jewish soul, on Shabbos. Okay, let's move forward with the parsha, chapter 35, 
verses 10 and 11. It says like this, Every wise-hearted person among you shall come, make everything that Hashem has commanded, the Mishkan. So now we're on to the Mishkan. So if you look at Medrash in Shemais Rabbah, section 33, under Ois Aleph, it's a very, very famous Medrash that speaks about the Mishkan. It's a famous parable, in fact. It says like this, There was once a king, and this king had an only daughter. All the, all the mashalim, all the, all the parables always start out with a king. The king has one daughter. Now, the Medrash says that after she got married, the new husband asked the king if he can take his bride to his own country. So the king responded that, you know, she is my only daughter, and while he didn't wish to be parted from her, he also couldn't rightfully prevent the husband from taking her away. So therefore the king requested like this. He said, in the future, wherever the couple's going to go, what he wanted, they should set up a little room for him over there. I guess he was going to be an involved father-in-law. And the king reasoned, like in this fashion, he'll be able to stay in this room and remain close to his daughter. So that's the mushal. What's the nimshal? What's the point of this? So the king of this medrash always represents Hashem, Hashem, the king, the king of kings, the king of the universe. King in in a mushal is always Hashem. And it comes to teach us that one of the central purposes of the Mishkan was to allow Hashem to remain close to Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people. We are the uh, the groom, so to speak, the prince, and uh, at, we're and the daughter over here is the Tyra. Hashem gave us his daughter, his Tyra, to the prince. That's us. And Hashem wanted to remain close to the Jewish people, and I guess his Tyra after he gave us the Tyra. Okay, so far so good. And the Mishkan enables the Shechina, God's divine presence, to be close. So far so good. So up to there, that's a famous medrash. Now the Be'er Yosef or Yosef Salant makes a famous observation on this medrash. He points out that if the son-in-law were to mistreat the king's daughter or to send her away outright, then the king would have no motivation to remain in proximity to the son-in-law or his newly constructed room. What would be the point? If the son-in-law would would throw her away, God forbid, or get rid of her or mistreat her, he's not going to interest in being around. So says the Ber Yosef, in the same vein, the only reason Hashem stays close to us is because we treat the Torah, his daughter, Kaviachal, properly. If we would, God forbid, abandon the Torah, Hashem would undoubtedly distance himself from us and his Mishkan and Beis HaMikdash as well. And of course, it should come as no surprise if you even make a cursory look at Jewish history, it reveals that the periods prior to the destruction of the first and second temples, they were nebuch marked by rampant neglect of Hashem's Torah. And conversely, the periods preceding the destruction, at the time that featured peaceful Jewish dominion over the land, and at the times when the temples did thrive, those were periods that were characterized by extraordinarily high levels of Torah and mitzvah observance. And Hashem, I think we could say, is undoubtedly delivered on his end of the bargain, as expressed in this medrash, that he stuck around when we treated the Torah nicely and correctly, his daughter. The question is, can we collectively say the same, that we've held our end of the bargain as well? Okay, I'd like to move on now to chapter 35, verse 20. Pasek says the entire assembly of the children of Israel left from before Moshe. They left from before Moshe. Melifne Moshe. Okay. The question is, why is the Torah bothered to mention this? The Jewish people obviously didn't stay with Moshe every single second of their lives. 
and the Torah doesn't record every single time the Jewish people are together with Moshe, and then they separate ways. Why does the Torah over here make a special emphasis that the, uh, the, the children of Israel left from before Moshe? What's this about, Moshe? So Avelio Lopianzatzal brings from the altar of Kelm a key lesson that could be learned over here. He says like this, when the Yidden, when the Jewish people left from before Moshe, like the Pusik says, it quickly became apparent that they had been in his presence. Why? Because Moshe's holy Hashpah's influence had left its mark on everything they would say and do. And from here, we see that when a Torah Jew is temporarily away from his or her yeshiva or base medrash or rav or rebetzin, etc., those holy influences should still be evident in everything we say and do. Even while we're away from the physical presence of our sources of spiritual inspiration, we should still remain in a status of lifnei Moshe. That's the vart, says Ravel Yelopian, in the name of the altar of Kelm. Okay, let's move on in the Parsha, chapter 35, verses 20 and 21. The Pusik says the entire assembly of the children of Israel left from before Moshe. Every man whose heart inspired him came. Now, there's a subtle imbalance to our psukim if you listen carefully. First, it says the entire assembly left Moshe. And then, every man came and brought the portion he intended to donate to the Mishkan. Why is there a switch between the two terms? The transition between the entire assembly and every man implies that the size of the crowd shrunk. Guess the entire assembly heard what they were supposed to do and, and then every man came. What happened? Our entire assembly to every man seems smaller. So the Chidah gives an answer that speaks to a truism in Jewish communal life. And in a moment you'll hear know it and you'll recognize and say, yep, that's true. In short, says the Chidah, he remarks that everybody was excited when they heard from Moshe what was supposed to be done. But when it came time to actually open their checkbooks, so to speak, and contribute to the Mishkan, many of the people, yep, they cooled off. The initial inspiration felt by the entire assembly about the upcoming building of the Mishkan, it dissipated when it came time to cough up the dough. Instead, the task now devolved upon those unique individuals, every man, who were able to effectively translate that inspiration into action and to step up to the plate and to give. So first, it's the entire assembly. They heard, but uh, yeah, yeah, they're nodding their heads. But Lamaisa, when it came down to it, who's going to do what they're supposed to? Then it became every man. The crowd shrunk. It became more Yechidim. Okay. Now, I would like to shift gears to something that sounds disconnected, but it actually is, and you'll understand where I'm going with this in a minute. The halachic sources, if you look in the Shulchan Aruch, the Chaya Adam, the Mishnah Brura, you'll see that they mention that there's a minig, there's a custom, to cover the knives on your table during Birkat HaMazon, Birkat HaMazon benching. There's a minig to cover the knives. Why? So there's two main reasons found in halacha that are proffered for this practice. Where did this come from? So one reason brought is because metal is often used to shorten life. Let's say you have a gun or a tank or a sword. Okay, metal's used to shorten life. Uh, but the table, the table in which we eat, it's comparable, it's diamond to the, to the Mizbeach, to the altar in the Beis HaMikdash, says the Gemara in Chagiga. And the, and the altar in the temple lengthens life. So metal shortens life, 
But the table, where the knife over here, it's like the, the Mizbeach and the Beis HaMikdash, which lengthens life. So as such, the visibility of a knife would be a little bit discordant with the emotions expressed at the time when we thank Hashem for our meal. So therefore, cover the knife. Okay, that's one shot why we do this. Another reason suggests that we cover the knife because it once happened that a person arrived at the phrase Uvene Yerushalayim, we find in benching Uvne Yerushalayim Yerakaydish Mehera Emenu that Hashem should rebuild Yerushalayim, and a Yid stabbed himself Nach in grief over the fact that it, it it hadn't yet happened that Hashem hadn't yet rebuilt Yerushalayim. Okay, so what's this about? So Rav Chatzka Levenstein Zatzal, he asks a great question in reference to the second reason for covering the knives. And it connects to the comment of the Chidah that I said above a few moments ago. Said Rav Chatzka, you know, how is it that covering the knives on the table is going to help? If somebody could be so aggrieved about Yerushalayim that he would stab himself, uh, certainly a little flimsy napkin or something placed over the knife probably isn't going to deter him. So how do we understand? So in response, if Chatzkel quipped a truism, he said that most people, Nebuch, are so lazy and so unable to translate their inspiration and their hergation and their emotions into action that once the knife is covered, at this point, you don't have to worry anymore about the person getting so worked up and stabbing himself. He definitely is not going to bother to go to the trouble. A person can feel so inspired and moved to the point that he literally kill himself, but he's not going to convert these feelings into action if he's going to have to budge even one inch to do so. And the reason this connects to the Chidah is it's very similar. The entire assembly came before Moshe Rabbeinu. They heard, they knew what they were supposed to do and give to the Mishkan. And then, even after hearing what the instructions were, it goes from the entire assembly to every man. Not everybody was able to translate the inspiration into action and to do what they were supposed to. Not that they couldn't, just that they did not. And the idea, and, and this is something I want to speak about to be Meirich for just uh, for a moment or two, the idea that we have to take the inspiration we feel and not be put off by little obstacles and speed bumps that come up, it's a crucial idea. I'll give you an example. After the last Siyam Ashas of the Dafa Yoimi, uh, I know several people that said, you know, I should start learning every day. I should start. I should really do it. And I, and I said, yes, I agreed with them. You should. And they say, you know, I don't know if I can always learn, go to a Shia live because of my schedule. So I said, well, why don't you download some shiurim online? They said, yeah, yeah, great idea. So I sent people different ideas and strategies and tips how to do so. And sometimes if you want to download a free shear online, maybe all you need to do is you just need to sign up. You need to put in your email address and, uh, and then they and uh, register. And then they'll send you back an email with like a code. And now you're signed up for the site. And now you can un download unlimited Shiurim and Devray Taira. So it's amazing that I, I saw some reactions from people that uh, this was already too much effort and work. Meaning they were prepared to spend the next seven and a half years 
learning Gemara for an hour or more every single day. That they were ready to do. But if they had to come to the point that they'd have to send their email address to a website in order to be able to download Shiram, already the whole thing was too much work. The whole thing already is not Negea. It's pathetic, but unfortunately a lot of us have this attitude that we display at one time or another. It's, but it's amazing, and it's similar with what I, the Vart I said from Rav Chatzkel. People are ready to cover the knife. Uh, that we have to cover the knife because uh, the guy could come on to the point that he'd be so upset that there's a Chorbin and Uvene Yerushalayim hasn't happened yet, that the Yerushalayim hasn't been totally built up yet again. So he could kill himself for it. But if he's going to have to uncover the napkin or the tissue, once it's already covering the knife, the whole thing's not Nageya. We don't have to worry anymore that, God forbid, he's going to kill himself. Interesting words, perhaps sharp words of Musser, but uh, very, very true. Okay, let's keep going. But uh, first, your public service announcement. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You're listening to JRoot Radio, 97.5 FM. And, uh, okay, now we can keep going. Chapter 35, verse 22. The Pasuk says that the men came with the women. The men came with the women. So this phrase strongly implies that it was the women who led the initiative to donate to the Mishkan. And that the men followed suit and came with them. The men came with the women. The men came with the women. Okay, so therefore, it sounds like the women led the initiative to give to the Mishkan. And that the men followed suit and came question is, is there a reason why it would be that the women in particular were the ones who led? So some people uh, <clears throat> would want me to say over here now all kinds of women tyrants, that women are gavaldic, and they are, and women are so halig, and they are, but that's not the vart over here according to the Imre Shefer of Shleima Kluger. So um, take this in a little bit of a different direction. Some people would want to use that if they had an agenda. Say, oh, women are so amazing. You see, men need to follow. And they are amazing. But that's not the vart over here that I was going to share over from Rav Shleim and Emre Shefri. He provides an answer instead based on a classic Talmudic principle. It's a, it's a, it's a famous Gemara. You can find it in Kedushin, Daf Lamed Aleph, Amad Aleph, Baba Kama, Lamed Ches Amad Aleph, Avoy Dezorah, Daf Gimel Amad Aleph. Okay. People ask sometimes why I put in those sources. The answer is there's some people listen to the Shear, and if I don't put in the sources, they start writing me emails to ask me what was the sources. But if I put a lot of sources, people ask me, they say, listen, you're not a Google search engine. I just want the basic point. So if you add the sources, people say too much. You don't add the sources, people want. Can I Nahara? Hashem should bless Klal Yisrael. Okay, let's go. So what's the Gemara say in these places? Famous rule that one who performs a mitzvah, having been commanded to do so, is greater than a person who performs the same mitzvah without having been commanded to do so. Again, if you perform a mitzvah and you were, and you were obligated to do so, commanded to do so, that's a greater act than if you did the mitzvah without having been commanded. Question is, why should that even be the case? I might have imagined that a person who performs a mitzvah without being commanded, and you do so voluntarily, without being commanded, you do so voluntarily. Hey, look, they're doing something extra. I would think that person's performing the greater deed. The fact is, Toysavis and others say, no, that's not true. While in both cases, whether you're commanded or not, the mitzvah, is still ultimately being performed 
the person who is commanded has a greater struggle to overcome. And what is that? That is because there's a natural yetzer hara and resistance against doing what a person is told to do. So therefore, the Jew who is commanded to perform a precept, a mitzvah, must accomplish the deed, number one, and also overcome a yetzer hara of rebellion to do the opposite of that which they were commanded to do. So says Rav Shema Kluger in the Imre Shefer, how does this apply to our question? The question was, why was it that the women went and gave first and not the men? So he points out that if you look in the Torah closely, you see in chapter 35, verse 4, the beginning of the parsha, that the mitzvah to donate to the Mishkan was given to the B'nai Yisrael. B'nai Yisrael is a term synonymous with the men of the Jewish people. So therefore, the women found it easier to step up and voluntarily give because they weren't commanded. Without having been commanded, the ladies didn't have to fight the Yitzharas on this one so they could donate first much more easily and naturally. However, the men, they quickly were able to wrestle with their Yitzharas that inevitably would appear in response to a command. They conquered it and they followed suit and they donated a short time later. That's how he explains the ordering over here. Okay, the next piece I'd like to share over with you is on chapter 35, verse 26. The Pusik says, All the women whose hearts inspired them with wisdom spun the goat hair. Okay, that's what it says. Now I'll share with you something fascinating that I've never said over before in public on this idea. Rashi notes that this was a feat of extraordinary craftsmanship, Rashi says. This was unbelievable. They didn't just spin the goat hair. The women would spin the goat hair on the backs of the goats. Meaning, while it was on the fleece, even before it was shorn and cut off from the animal, that's where the ladies were spinning the goat hair. Not just stomp, but mamish while it was on the animal still. Very, very impressive. The question is, what was the purpose in, in doing something in such a dramatic and unusual fashion? What's the point? So the Svarno gives a practical reason. Uh, you find this in the Rishayim, mean, he says like this, apparently the way it works with goat hair, and, and what do I know from goat hair? I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, I know from goat hair. But this is what he says, apparently the way it works is that the more it's handled after the cutting time, the more the hair of a goat, I guess, loses its luster and its shine, it loses some of its quality. The more you touch it, the more you handle it after the time it's cut off. So therefore, it says Farno, the reason the ladies worked the goat hair while it was still attached to the animal in such a more awkward manner in a more difficult way was to be able to enhance the beauty of the future mishkan i guess they would do what they needed to do and then remove it at the last step and uh it would enhance the beauty of the mishkan okay that's one reason a practical reason now rav yonison ibeshitz he gives a teretz that's a halachic one the Shari Aira. Rav Meir Tzvi Bergman Shlita and his Sefer, he gives the same answer. And others also give basically the same halachic explanation. They say like this, you know, as you could have expected, a certain percentage of the women uh, in, in the Jewish people at the time, uh, amongst those who wanted to work on the Mishkan, a certain percentage would be Tomei because of Nida, Tomas Nida at any given time. A certain percentage of women are Tomei for that reason. Now, obviously... These ladies didn't want to make the goat hair that would be incorporated into the Mishkan Tomei. 
we want the mishkan to be uh, all the ingredients and everything going into it to be tahor. But at the same time, they still wanted to have a chelik in the avoidus. So what did they do? So, the, so Rav Yonis and Ibishit, Shari'oyra, others explain they spun the goat hair while it was still attached to the fleece of the animals. How is this going to help? So if you look at the Rambam in Hilchas Tumas Meis, Perik Aleph, Halacha Yud Gimel, the Rambam explains the, the Halacha. The Halacha is that an animal, while it's alive, cannot become Tomei ritually impure by being touched by a Tomei person. So if, uh, I guess if the ladies who were, were Tomei from Tumas Nida, they would spin the goat hair while it's attached to the animals, even if they wouldn't have been Tomei, the Halacha is that they could not be Metama the animal. Um, while it was alive by being touched by a person in that uh, situation. So therefore they were able to, uh, they were able to have a chalik in this avoida of spinning these, uh, the goat hairs for the mishkan. Very interesting. Now the Meshechachma, he says something that's pretty cool, which coincides nicely with that uh, Rav Yenis and Ibeshitz and others in this Rambam, the Hilchas Thomas Mace. If you look at our parsha, chapter 35, verse 26, it says, All the women talks about all the women being involved over here. But if you look at chapter 35, verse 25, the puzzle before, and what the women work with over there, it talks about Isha, which just means woman, one woman. So first it's all the women in, in, in verse 26, but in verse 25, the one before, it says Isha, just woman. What's the difference? So Meshachachma wants to say it's this vart. When they were doing the goat hair on the backs of the animals, it couldn't become Tame. So even Anida could do it. And that's why it says over there, all of the women, because all of them were eligible to be involved in the Savoida at that time. But, it, but the other Pasuk, in the other Pasuk, it's talking about things detached, things that were detached. And once it would be detached, that item, once it's detached from its source, could be Makabal Tumah. So not every woman would be eligible to work with that stuff. And so, instead of you saying all the women, over there, it talks about Isha, which just means woman, which is a more singular tense, to give a narrower description and depiction of who could be involved with it. So the Meshechachma goes in this direction as well. Very, very nice, Tikal Taira. Okay, I'd like to move forward and speak a little bit about the Nesim, the leaders of the tribes. Chapter 35, verse 27, it says, The Nesim, the leaders, they brought the Shoham stones and the stones for the settings for the aphoid and the breastplate of the Kayin Gadol. So, question the commentaries are busy with here is, why are the gifts of the Nesim, the leaders of the tribes, listed last amongst the donations to the Mishkan? Why is it listed last? That's surprising, as you might have imagined that the leaders, they would have been mentioned first because of their uh, distinguished positions. Also, the gift to the Nesim, they were actually the most precious of all the gifts given to the Mishkan, the most expensive, certainly. They consisted of what's called the Shoham stones and the settings for the Aphoid and the settings for the breastplate of the Kayin Gadol. Trust me, these are the most chashiva, most precious, valuable donations. Why are they listed last? So Rashi has a well-known explanation. He says that the gifts of the Nesim are listed last because when it came to build a Mishkan, and all the Jewish people came forward to donate, the Nesim contributed last. They contributed last, so they're listed last. They said, let the public contribute what they're going to give, and whatever's leaving and lacking over, we will complete it, we'll finish the job. Well, that sounds very noble, 
And as often been pointed out, everybody who runs an organization wishes somebody would come along and say something like that. Sounds pretty good, no? You raise whatever you need to raise this month in order to meet the budget. And anything missing, come to me. I'll fill in the gap. Halavai, I wish a Jewish Executive Learning Network had a donor or donors who spoke like the Nassim. But Afal Pekain, something seems to be wrong with this. It sounds very noble, but the Nassim were punished for this attitude because it reflected a certain quality of laziness. And in fact, it's for this reason that the letter Yud was deleted from the word Nassim over here in our Parsha, and it's written what we call Chaser. Chaser means lacking all of the letters found in the regular spelling of the word. Sometimes Nesim is written in Tanakh with two Yuds, and sometimes with just one Yud. Sometimes it's at the front of the word, and sometimes it's at the back of the word. Over here in our parish is the only place in the entirety of the Tanakh where it's written with no Yuds. They're stripped of the Yuds as a sign of punishment. The word Nesim is written Chaser because they were lazy, there was something lacking in them, so some of the Oisi, some of the letters that comprise their name is missing. Now, in reference to all of this, Rav Chaim Shmuel Levitzatzal in the Sichus Musar comments, you see from over here that sometimes, this is what's really going on, a person subconscious is controlling their so-called logic and reasoning. Your subconscious interest is controlling what's going on in your head. While the Nisim believed that their intentions to delay donating, that it was noble and everything else, the real motivating drive behind their behavior was laziness. And each of us has to learn to look closely at our true motivations for our actions. If we're honest, we'll often find that a seemingly logical decision was really influenced by our innate laziness. Sometimes a person might say, you know, I'd love to go to the Rav's class tonight, but you know, it's just not really responsible for me to go to a, a Torah class. Yeah, I, I work the next morning. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Is that really the case? You know, that stream of logic maybe didn't apply, didn't seem to appeal to you when you met up with your group of friends for fun last Sunday night, you know? In truth, the logic over here, it really stems from laziness. So said Rav Chaim Shmulevitz and others, the Nesim seemingly had all this kind of logic going in their minds, but Lamaisa, it was really stemming from laziness. I often re- remember when I say over the Shtikl Torah, classic Ramchal. The Ramchal writes in Mesilla Shesharim on this Midah of laziness, and he speaks about it, and he says that anything that lightens a bur- our burden in life, which reduces the amount we have to do, we have to give, we have to learn, we have to help others, it has to be examined closely because many times our lightening of our burden, it's not because it's really the right thing to do. Really, Lamaisa, it just stems from our atzlus, from our laziness, something to bear in mind. Now, why did the Nesim get punished with a diminutive, smaller spelling of the name over here? So I said a few moments ago, the Rashi, that they said, let the public give whatever they're going to give, and uh, whatever's missing in the end, we're going to complete it. The Pnei Menachem of Ger, Zatzal, the Pnei Menachem, one of the Ger Rebbes, explains exactly another Nakuda, what was wrong with this attitude. Says the Pnei Menachem, where did they get off even thinking that anything would be lacking at all? How come they didn't judge the fe- their fellow Jews positively? and simply assumed that they'd accomplished the required task. Why didn't they think that the Jews would? Where, what's a Havamina that they think that the Klali Yisrael is not going to give enough to get the job done? That they're going to have to step up to the plate to, the give, to give? So says the Pnei Menachem, it was for that myopic attitude that they were punished and had the Yuds stripped from their names.
Now, if the Nesiyam had to be stripped of a letter or two, why was it that the Yuds, the letter Yuds, were the ones they lost? So, uh, one of the, uh, the Gerebbes, before the Pnei Menachem, the Chedush HaRim, the first Gerebbe, says that the letter Yud refers to the spark of being a Yid. The Yud represents being a Yid, a Jew. And that spark, what was missing inside of him. The letter Yud denotes action and activity. For example, in Lashon HaKadosh, when you, you, when you put the letter Yud in front of a verb, it causes that word to spring to life and it denotes activity. It brings things to life and movement and action. Since that feeling, says Chedush Arim, was missing from the Nesim, that was the letter that was removed. They simply didn't show any of what the Yud stands for. So therefore, the, the Yud in the Yid was missing. So therefore, it was stripped of them, says the Chedush Arim. Now, before we'll move on from the Nesim, I want to point out a way that the, that the Ksav Seifer says we could judge their behavior favorably. The Ksav Seifer contends that when the Nesim delayed in bringing forth their donations, and instead they waited to complete the shortfall, they did so with a Gemara in mind. There's a Gemara in Saita, Dafyud Gimelamid Beis. The Talmud says over there that whoever does something but does not complete it, and another person comes and completes it, Scripture considers the one who completed it as if he had done the entire thing. So since credit for a mitzvah always goes to the one who completes it, the Nesim wanted the schus, the merit of being ones to wrap up the task. After all, could there be a bigger merit than being credited with building the Mishkan, which would be Kodesh Baruch Hu's abode in this world? However, despite this well-meaning calculation, Hashem disagreed with their judgment and said that instead they should have been zealous to give earlier in time. But Ksav Seifer says that's a way to judge the Nesim and their behavior favorably. Okay, so I'd like to speak now about Betzalel. Betzalel was the chief architect of the Mishkan. That's the chief reason for which he's famous in the Torah. Let's look at some psukim, some verses dealing with him. Chapter 35, verses 30 to 32. It says, See, Hashem is proclaimed by name Betzalel. And then the Torah says, He filled him, meaning Hashem filled him with godly spirit, with wisdom, with insight and knowledge, to think thoughts, to work with silver and gold and copper. Fine. Now, Hashem filled Betzalel with godly spirit, wisdom, insight, and knowledge. Wow, what a present. So the Gemara says in Brachis, on 55a, the Gemara explains this to mean, what is this godly spirit, wisdom, insight, knowledge? Says the Gemara, Betzalel knew the secrets of how to join the letters of the Aleph Beis, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, to make the Mishkan, just in the same way as Hashem had used these letters to create heaven and earth. So that's pretty impressive. That's what it means that Hashem filled him with godly spirit and wisdom and insight and knowledge. Hashem told him how, showed him how, gave him the ability to take the letters of the olive base to build the Mishkan. And then in the very next Pasuk that we find right after this, the Torah tells us that Betzalel knew how to think thoughts. It said to think thoughts, he, he could think thoughts. And he could work with gold and silver and copper. Now, if you look at it honestly, after the initial series of praises, the godly spirit with wisdom and insight and knowledge, and the Gemara Bracha, he's telling us what it means, Kabbalah and all of this. 
aren't these latter praises really an afterthought? Oh, and by the way, he could work with gold, silver, and copper. Uh, Yashikayach. Yeah, okay. And also, what does it mean that Betzalel knew how to think thoughts? Betzalel knew how to think thoughts. I mean, every thought involves thinking. Not every, not every thought is a good thought. Uh, some are better, some are worse, some are higher quality, some are poor. Every thought involves thinking. What does it mean he knew how to think thoughts? <laughs> What's so special about that? So a famous answer comes from the Chedushe Harim, Rav Chaim Volozhiner, the Sefer called Igra the Kala, others, many others. They all explain like this. B'Tzalel was able to discern both the intentions and spiritual darga, the level of each donor to the Mishkan. So for example, if someone gave willingly and truly for the sake of heaven, then that person's gift would be used for the most sacred of items, such as the Ark. And if the person's madrega, the person's uh, level, spiritual level, and his intentions would be on a lower level, then that donation would be used for a lesser item in the Mishkan. So they explain, that's what it means that B'Tzalel knew how to think thoughts and work with gold and silver and copper. That's no afterthought. That's really a great praise. He could think thoughts and discern the intentions and the kavon and the diary of the spiritual level of each donor. And based on that, lefi that, he could basically then craft it into the gold, silver, or copper instrument for, for the Mishkan as appropriate. That is something very, very appropriate, very high level, very impressive. Okay, now let's speak a little bit over here about B'Tzalel, and uh, Aholiyev, who was his uh, assistant. But B'tzalel, the verse tells us, in uh, chapter 35, I think verse 30, was from the tribe of Yehuda. And uh, Aholiyev, the psukim are going to tell us, is from Shevet Don, the tribe of Don. Between verses 30 and 34, you see B'tzalel is from the tribe of Yehuda, and Aholiyev is from the tribe of Don. Why were they joined together in the making of the Mishkan? Yehuda, Don... What's pshat? So the answer is like this. One answer. Many, many terutzim. Some want to say like this. The Mishkan was a place where a person could go to upgrade his relationship with Hashem. And when you would go to the Mishkan, you could repair any damage you as an individual may have done to that relationship between you and a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So in that respect, the Mishkan was kind of like a shul or a yeshiva or a base medrash, but like all rolled into one. Okay, now a person has to be honest and admit that any honest effort at self-improvement and drawing closer to Hashem, it requires the fusing of two different elements, din and rachamim. What's din? Din means judgment and rachamim is mercy. Din is necessary because for a person to improve, there must be an immovable and absolute divine standard of right and wrong towards which you have to climb, and against which your actions and deeds are measured. However, the element of mercy, that also is indispensable when you want to get close to Hashem. Because if Hashem wouldn't be willing to have mercy and overlook our past trespasses and shortcomings, we'd never be given a second chance to overcome our past errors. So now that you know this, we can understand why Betzalel and Aholiyov were joined together in the making of the Mishkan. I've seen it brought down that the selection of these two chief architects of the Mishkan represent the ever-present need for the element of Rachmim and Din in the journey towards spiritual growth. B'Tzalel, 
belongs to the tribe of Yehuda. Yehuda is the name that contains the four-letter name of Hashem, the Yud Kevavke, and that name represents the quality of Rachamim. Yehuda is Yud Hey Vav Dalit Hey. So uh, four of the five letters are, are the name of Rachamim, the name of Hashem, the Yud Kevavke, name of Rachamim. So you have the element of Rachamim in the building of the Mishkan. Meanwhile, Aholiyav, he comes from Shevet Don, the tribe of Don. And the tribe of Don, the letters is, is Dalit Nun, is a word which is etymologically connected to the word Din, which means judgment. So you have Din and Rachamim in the names of the Shvatim that were represented in the building of the Mishkan. A very nice vart. Now it's fascinating to note also that after partnering up to fashion the Mishkan, the tribes of Yehuda and Don collaborated together once again in building the first temple. In the first base of Mikdash, Yehuda and Don, they're back at it again. If you look specifically in Tanakh, you find that Shlema Melech, he came from the tribe of Yehuda, while Hiram came from Shevet Don, the tribe of Don. But that partnership is not even enough. If you look in the Zayir HaKadosh and Parshas Balak, it says that these two tribes will once again play a role in bringing the Geula Shlema, the final redemption as well. Very, very nice Shtikl Taira in that aspect also. Okay, we unfortunately only have a little bit of time left. Let's see how much more we can get through. So I'd like to focus on something that you don't hear too much Taira on most years in the Shi'urim on the Parshas Vayakel. In chapter 36, Verse 33. I want to speak about something called the Briach Hatichoin, the middle bar. We're talking about the Mishkan still. And the Pusik says he made the middle bar, the Briach Hatichoin, to extend within the planks from, uh, from end to end. Okay, so what is this? What is this Briach Hatichoin? This is what I want to speak about a little bit. So the Briach Hatichoin was the middle beam that held up the walls of the Mishkan. The Briach HaTichayin was a middle beam that held up the walls of the Mishkan. So far, so good. So the Gemara says in Tractate Shabbos on 98b that the Briach HaTichayin was totally miraculous in nature. Rashi over there explains that it was 70 amois long, which is huge, and it encircled the three walls of the Mishkan. So you might ask, where did this Briach HaTichayin come from? So I've seen the Targum Yenis of Anuziel want to say it came from the Eishel tree, that Avram Avinu had planted in Be'er Sheva, back in the book of Bereshish, chapter 21, verse 33, says Abraham planted an Eishel, an Eishel, which is perhaps a kind of tree in Be'er Sheva. From there, that's where this miraculous middle beam and wood came from. So what happened? So apparently the Malachim, the angels came and cut it down, and they threw it into the Red Sea, and it floated until Moshe retrieved it. That's Targum Yonis and ben Where did this Briach HaTichayin come from? What does Avram Avinu have to do with the support of the walls of the Mishkan? Taira for another time. Now there's a fascinating comment from the Svas MS. If you look him up in his Ksavim, and this is in the year 5652, in which Svas MS, in which he connects the Briach HaTichayin to the holiday of Shavuos. What does the Briach HaTichayin have anything to do with Shavuos, this middle beam that held up the walls of the Mishkan? What does it even have to do with Shavuot? How so? What's the connection? So Shavuos, we know, comes between Pesach and Sukkot in the order of the Shalash Regalim. 
And as such, it's considered to be the middle Yom Tov. Shavuos comes between Pesach and Sukkot in the order of the Shalash Regalim. So it's like the middle Yom Tov. Now the middle, it's a distinguished position in Torah thought. And thus it evokes the image of the Briach HaTichon. Briach HaTichon was the middle beam. And, and Shavuos is like the, the middle Yom Tov. Not only that, Sfas Emes points out that the planks that form the walls of the Mishkan were held up by five beams, two towards each, two towards the top and two towards the bottom, and then the middle beam running inside the walls gave support to the rest. Sfasemis wants to say that the two De'eraisa Torah-mandated days of Pesach observance, the first and the last, and the De'eraisa days of Sukkis are, uh, are of Sukkis and Shemini Atzeris. So therefore, the one day of Shavuos, the Briach HaTichain, supports them all. It's amazing. That's how Sfasemis learns it up. The Mishkan, it was held up by five beams, two at the top and two in the bottom. And he says, those are the Deraisa days of Pesach and Sukkis, meaning Sukkis Shemini Atzeris. And Shavuos is the Briach HaTichain in the middle, and it's a middle from the Shalash Regalim. Classic, classic, Sfas Emes, just not very, very well known. Let's try with one more Shtikl Taira. Uh, let's go something with Betzalel making the Aaron. Uh, chapter 37, verse 1, it talks about the Aaron. It's well known, the Gemara tells us, that the Ark miraculously took up no space in the Holy of Holies. It's a Gemara in Megillah, and Yuma, Baba Basra, etc. The Aaron, the Ark, took up no space in the Kaddish HaKadoshim, no space. So if the container took up no space, we'd expect the same miracle to apply to the contents of the Aaron, which were even holier. However, the Gemara says in Baba Basra, that the Luchais, the tablets in the original Torah scroll, i.e. the contents of the Ark, they completely packed up and filled up all the space in the Ark. Question is, why was this so? Why did the contents fill up all of the space when the container miraculously took up no room? It's an interesting question. Why was it the Aaron, the container, took up no room at all? But the contents of it were totally packed. So Rav Moshe Zatzal, Rav Moshe Feinstein in the Darish Moshe, Parshish Truma, explains and what this will be Messiah tonight. Says Rav Moshe, the lesson here is that every single Jew has to make him or herself like the Ark, the Aaron, and become fully and totally packed with Torah. However, on the outside, and when you're dealing with the world, there could be no attitude of self-importance or haughtiness or gaiva. Over there, a person has to imitate the Holy of Holies, such that the Ben Torah, the Ark, the Aaron, so to speak, should make himself almost though he doesn't exist. And a person who is able to accomplish this feat will parallel the Luchos, the Torah scroll, and the Ark, as I described a moment ago. So the container, meaning the outside, the external, takes up no room. And on the outside, a ben Torah, a Torah a Jew, a man or a woman has to act hopefully humble and, uh, and, and proper, not in a guy a haughty way as we go on the outside like the Aaron. But the contents, meaning what's inside of us, should be absolutely packed with Torah and Shas and Paiskim and Allah and Yerushamayim and Musr and, and everything, everything good. We should be totally packed on the inside. The inside should be totally packed. It's just the outside that we should be uh, in such a way that we should not attach ourselves exceedingly large importance on the outside and, and to the point that it would come to an appearance of haughtiness or ego. I thank you very much for listening. This is Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Bregman of the Jewish Executive Learning Network. You've been listening to JRoot Radio, 97.5 FM. If you'd like to get in touch with me after this year, anytime in the days ahead, write me an email, director 
at jeln.org, director at jeln.org. If you'd like to catch previous shiurim of mine on the parsha, you can download them from the uh, JRoot Radio website. If you go to torahanytime.com and look up my page, I have a few hundred shiurim there. And I wish you a beautiful, beautiful Shabbos. Thank you for being with me. And Amir Tzashem, next week we'll finish the last Parsha in the Book of Shemais. Have a good evening. Thanks for being here. All the best.